Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posting January 8th, 2016, we talk with WPJ Managing Editor Jaffa Frederick about the way Vladimir Putin plays to his home constituency and the wider world as Russia loses an airliner to the Islamic State, a fighter jet to Turkey, and electricity for Crimea. We'll also point out top features in the new WPJ winter issue. But first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the West Wing Reports News Service. Well, the new year appears to have begun with quite a bang. North Korea conducting what Pyongyang says was the successful test of a hydrogen bomb. U.S. and South Korea picked up strong seismograph activity early Wednesday. This ultimate form of saber-rattling comes with talk from the communist North that it's ready for war. The White House says it condemns North Korea's nuclear activity and will never accept it as a nuclear state. North Korea first tested nuclear weapons a decade ago, yet was removed by the Bush administration from its list of official terror. Nations. A state of war still exists on the Korean Peninsula, by the way. The Korean War, fought more than six decades ago, has officially never ended. The White House is also trying to navigate the growing tension between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Protests erupted in Shia-dominated Iran after a leading Shia cleric was executed by Sunni-dominated Saudi Arabia. Secretary of State John Kerry has been working the phones, urging both governments to remain calm. Saudi Arabia and Iran have long been bitter rivals, of course, with Saudi Arabia urging the U.S. to bomb Iran's nuclear facilities in years past. The U.S. has broader concerns about all of this as well, namely the impact on efforts to fight the Islamic State and get rid of Syrian dictator Bashar al-Assad. And I had a chance to ask President Obama whether he would go to Cuba this year, his final year in office. He wouldn't say, but the president has made no secret of his desire to visit now that relations between Washington and Havana have resumed. One source in the West Wing does say, though, that any trip by the president, if it were to occur, would probably be after the November election. For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandis at the White House. You're listening to World Policy On Air. Now this. We're really enraged by the fact, if it was really an accident, John Kerry's visit has demonstrated that the American side is ready to move towards... mutual solvent of existing problems. At just over three hours, Russian President Vladimir Putin's year-end news conference for 2015 still fell a few minutes short of his record for length, but not for crudity, although it was not quite clear what American body part he meant Istanbul was licking when it downed a Russian fighter jet violating Turkish airspace on a sortie over Syria. Still, the press session well reflected some of Putin's many trials and triumphs over the year. Even more embarrassing than the felled fighter was the bombing of a Russian airliner leaving Egypt with 224 aboard, for which the Islamic State or ISIS quickly claimed credit shortly after the Kremlin began air attacks in support of ISIS-besieged Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. 
and Russia's influential new role in the Syrian conflict held a prospect of even higher costs ahead in blood and treasure with no sure promise of resolution, although Secretary of State John Kerry did have to back off Washington's original Assad-must-go demand as a starting point. Putin also scored a diplomatic victory at the United Nations with passage over U.S. objections of a resolution to eliminate racism, racial discrimination, xenophobia, and related intolerance, despite Russia's own long history of prejudice towards various ethnic, religious, gay, and lesbian groups. It contained two poison pill articles that Washington had to see as incompatible with free speech. Closer to home, Putin had to arrange emergency aid for Crimea after reasserting Russian rule when mysterious explosions cut electric power from Ukraine, where the president finally had to admit there was a Russian military presence, and anti-Russian forces mounted a blockade of basic supplies. Angry Russian truckers also blocked roads around Moscow to protest new highway fees linked to a Putin political ally, as falling oil prices and continued Western sanctions sapped the economy, stirring domestic bitterness. And NATO went ahead with an invitation for full membership to the tiny Balkan state of Montenegro that had the Kremlin crying provocation and encirclement. World Policy Journal Managing Editor Jaffa Frederick has been following Putin's key strategies and setbacks for months, starting with a WPJ blog post headlined, The Russian Trump Card, and we talked about it all recently for this podcast. Jaffa, welcome back to World Policy on Air. Thanks for having me. Let's start with your post, which was not about Putin's praise for Donald Trump, but his ploy at the UN over racism, discrimination, and intolerance and in particular provisions to counter hate speech that he must have known would bring U.S. objections. But it was also part of a Kremlin plan to link Washington and Kiev with neo-Nazis. Explain that. Well, in mid-November, the Russian delegation at the U.N. introduced a resolution that it actually introduced a year prior, condemning Nazism and other forms of discrimination. Ostensibly, this is a resolution that every Western country should have signed on to. And yet, as you said, when the vote happened, the U.S., Ukraine, Canada abstained. I'm sorry, voted against it, and all of Europe abstained, except for Serbia. So you have to kind of closely examine what this resolution said. And this resolution is a lot more than paying lip service to tolerance of others. Um, In the case of Nazism, this is the trump card that the Russian government basically has played since World War II. Uh, It can argue that in World War II, Russians were on the right side of history, and this is the kind of rhetoric that really resonates with the Russian people today who can feel proud of their role in fighting this cruel fascist regime. But it also allows Putin to isolate Ukraine. Ukraine and to really pinpoint Ukraine as this fascist government. It's not the the most terribly challenging case to make because Ukraine does have some Nazi connections. Um, Ukrainian President Petro Poroshenko recently recognized two political parties, uh, the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists and the Ukrainian Insurgent Army, both of whom are widely acknowledged to have colluded with the Nazis and killed many Ukrainian Jews during World War II. Um, And worse yet, parts of Western Ukraine today are seen as pro-Nazi simply because the Nazis were anti-Soviet. So Ukrainians today kind of look fondly upon parties that dare to challenge Soviet and now Russian authority in the past. But of course, the real target is never just Ukraine. It's certainly the U.S. Um, Russian papers are notorious for running stories of police brutality against African Americans, for example, arguing that the U.S. is hypocritical to ever really talk about equal rights when its own law enforcement is clearly uh, targeting people on the basis of 
skin color. But to really ensure that the U.S. couldn't vote for this resolution, they added these two uh, poison pill provisions, as you refer to, uh, Articles 12 and 32, which basically allow for governments to take, quote, adequate provisions against what they deem as hate speech, even controlling the Internet to do so. And so certainly the U.S., uh, with its First Amendment and free speech doctrine, could not support uh, such, such a resolution. So was Putin playing more to the international audience, uh, to domestic elites on whom he relies, or to ordinary Russians who, as you say, still respond to the, the, the concept of a Nazi threat of an earlier era? Sure. Well, I think with Putin, he's always playing to domestic audiences first and foremost, uh, both to the elites who prop him up and to the general population who he does rely on for uh, support. So, you know, notably, the minute the resolution was passed, the Russian foreign ministry shared this victory on state-owned TV, radio, and in newspapers. And in disseminating this information so quickly and widely within Russia, the government was once again making the case that we, the Russians, are these educated, enlightened ones, and all those who oppose the resolution are neo-Nazis and fascists. Um, it certainly plays, you know, also to an international audience, especially at the UN, and kind of highlights the division that now exists between Russia and many of the authoritarian regimes that supported this resolution, you know, notably Sudan, Eritrea, Syria, Venezuela, North Korea, quite a cast of characters against the U.S. and its democratic counterparts in Europe. Similarly, in the Syrian conflict, uh, besides simply demonstrating Russian influence abroad, some analysts see Putin trying to paint Washington as a party to terrorism by all anti-Assad rebels, including ISIS. Others see a payoff to Assad's ally Iran for agreeing to the long-delayed nuclear deal that uh, Russia helped promote, uh, however effective it may or may not be. What's your view on that? Well, I do think this is very similar to the UN example. This is a case where Putin can really paint the U.S. as the villain because it's a situation where the opposition is blurred. Who is ISIS and who are, you know, democratic opposition forces? It's a very fine line. It's much easier to be uh, pro-Assad and anti-opposition, which includes ISIS, than to be anti-Assad, pro-certain opposition, and anti-ISIS. Um, so this this is another case where, I think Putin can easily paint the U.S. as the bad guy. Um, but the outcome, again, this is critical uh, in one particular respect. Putin demonstrates his ability to his own people to support a foreign client and make the U.S. look bad at a time when he needs to show other leaders within his domestic coalition, so this is particularly the elites, that he's still a strong leader. Um, and of course, you know, Syria has been a client of Moscow since the early 1970s, buying weapons, naval supplies, and other materials. So there is a reason for, you know, Putin to be entering in on Assad's side, but specifically to paint the U.S. on the other side of that at a time where he really has to show strength at home. And in, in terms of the Iran connection, you know, it's not irrelevant. Uh, one thing that uh, many commentators noticed, and I did as well, is that you know, Russia's support was necessary to get the Iran deal signed. And as soon as the U.S. supported the deal, Russia was then also ready to involve itself in Syria, which it hadn't been before. So the timing is, uh, is notable. And if you fast forward to the end of November this year, Putin visited Tehran bearing several gifts, but most notably lifting a ban on uranium exports to Iran. And this weekend, Iran announced that it would also then send enriched uranium to Russia, which was a key, one of the key provisions to getting the economic sanctions lifted against Iran. So the timing of the Iran deal and 
uh, the ban being lifted and then Russia making the decision to involve itself in Syria is, is um, noticeable. How do you think the downing of that airliner over Egypt, which was uh, prompted or at least preceded by the expanded role in Syria, affects Putin's uh, strategy and tactics in Syria? Does it, does it force him to escalate the military role? Or are you surprised that there hasn't been more than rhetoric in response to what really was an act of war? I think it's a complicated question because the downing of the the jetliner, especially weeks after Russia went into Syria, certainly exposed Russia's vulnerabilities. And what you saw in a classic case of, you know, state-owned media is that the Russian government wasn't willing to concede right away that, that ISIS had done it, uh, because doing so really would expose the, that vulnerability. But at the same time, you know, Putin stays in power through his rhetoric. He, it's what he's able to assert uh, in those three-hour-long press conferences that really generates that kind of nationalist patriotism that has kept him in power for so long. He's also practical, and he, now that he's in it, I think he, he does want to win it. But what he's realizing, and, and in the last week we've seen this with Kerry sitting down with uh, his foreign minister, Lavrov, to discuss this, is that he can't do it alone. And so I think, for, you know, for the first time in several months, you have Russia and the U.S. sitting in a room together trying to figure out where the common ground is, because Putin can't lose this. That said, if he did lose it, I think he'd still probably declare victory and, and go home. Well, that, that leads to the other question. Could the military or its leaders rebel against the policy in Syria if they see little chance of success, more cost to them? Does Putin have an end game or an exit strategy? Does he, does he ever have an exit strategy? Russia is not Egypt. It's not a situation where you have this independent military that's incredibly strong and able to uh, make executive decisions. Russia is a situation where the military is very much connected to to Putin um, and, and his oligarchy. And so I think that if he chooses to exit, which, again, I think is unlikely, I think now that you have the U.S. and Russia sitting down for the first time in the last week, it gives me a little bit more hope that people are starting to think we have to work together on this. Ironically, it seems that one factor in Turkey's downing of his fighter jet is that despite Putin's anti-ISIS rhetoric, his forces have mostly targeted the other anti-Assad forces backed by Turkey and other U.S. allies. So it's arguable who really stabbed whom in the back. Would you say that his outrage and economic response are more restrained than might have been expected after another such warlike incident? Sure. Well, you know, I think... So I would say his rhetoric toward Turkey in the last few weeks has actually been quite strong, right? You know, you stabbed me in the back. This was a hostile act. You only did this to ingratiate yourself to the U.S. Um, and, and he's even attacked Erdogan in a way that he's never done before, saying that, you know, Ataturk would be rolling over in his grave if he saw the Islamization of uh, Turkey today. He's also placed these economic sanctions on Turkey. He's canceled several major investment projects. He's halted, you know, a lot of tourism into Turkey. Um, so it does seem that he's really, he is doubling down on Turkey. The one thing he's not doing is, is a military response. Um, and I think that that probably goes into the existing economic relations that are there between the two countries. Uh, is it also limited, uh, his, his, his abs the absence of a military response, by the fact that Turkey, unlike Ukraine, is a full NATO member with all the mutual defense support that might imply? 
Well, you know, I think that's probably a little bit of it. Obviously, I don't, you know, Putin is not ready to go up against the West in a war right now. He financially can't afford it. His economy is in shambles. But I do think that it comes back to this economic uh, relationship. So after Germany, Turkey is the number two buyer of Russian gas. And in fact, I think it was December of last year, um, this Gazprom, Russia's big gas provider, signed a $10 billion deal with Turkey. Uh, so a third of gas exports from Russia are going into Turkey. It's also its second biggest trade partner in the world. Um, these financial realities, especially when the Russian economy is in such a sorry state where, it, where its economy has been shrinking, where inflation is higher than it's been before, have to color some of the decisions that Putin's making in his response to Turkey. So again, his response is less a message to Turkey and to other U.S. allies with military operations in the region uh, and more for domestic consumption because he can't appear to do nothing. Correct. You know, I think uh, Professor Kimberly Martin at Barnard College said it best, actually, when I was looking at her comments, that Putin is like a gambler on a losing streak, taking on even bigger risks to try and make up for what he's lost. And so because of the dire economic straits his country is in, he must constantly demonstrate to his people and to the elites that are kind of keeping him in power that he's strong and capable of holding things together, um, even if that means, as, as his rhetoric indicates over the last few weeks, you know, sacrificing a, a key trade partner, at least temporarily, like Turkey. Well, speaking of the domestic audience and domestic consumption, to what degree do you see the trucker's strike uh, or protest as a sign of, of serious unrest in Russia's new and growing middle class to the nation's economic woes, the falling price of oil, the revenue lost because of it, uh, more lost revenue and lost imports resulting from sanctions drawn by Putin's foreign policies? Could it become serious enough to have the elites, if not the masses, demand a change in policy or even leadership? Well, you know, I think I think the trucker protests are quite significant because it's the first time we're seeing protests like this uh, since the Russian economy took a turn for the worse, right? Oil and other commodities that the Russian economy relies on remain depressed and probably will remain depressed into 2016. Inflation is at 15.6%. The economy has shrunk 4% since last year. The ruble has lost almost half its value against the dollar. Um, and, of course, Western sanctions remain in place. I mean, the EU actually just renewed sanctions this past weekend, or Friday, I believe, actually, for another six months. So they're a dire economic state. Now, how are you going to make up for that money? Well, Russian elites have advised Putin that taxing truck drivers is the way to do it. You know, every truck driver now driving on these interstate um, highways is, is going to be paying significantly higher tolls, cutting into 10% of their revenue. But I think this is actually generating more unrest amongst the masses than the elites, because the elites are really saying, we don't want to take the hit. We understand we're in a dire state, but we don't want to take the hit, have, them, have this burgeoning middle class take the hit. And so you know, the masses are unsettled. That said, and this is, I think, really critical in Russia, you know, all of these reports about these trucker protests are notably not in Russian media. It's, you know, me reading it in the New York Times or the Washington Post. So I actually have more access to information outside of Russia than many Russians do. And to generate this kind of massive unrest that would lead to a change in leadership, Russians would have to have the knowledge that this was happening across their country, that these small protests that the government is really trying to control and having police blockades put in place of and trying to really cordon them off, that they're happening. And that knowledge gap um, still exists, and I don't think it's going to be filled anytime soon because most of Russian media now is really under state control. 
But we've talked uh, on this program before, and you've put in the uh, on the website and even in the magazine the degree to which social media is now competing with state media, and and people do have at least a greater chance than they did before of knowing what's going on. And certainly they can see uh, articles of, that they were familiar with disappearing from their sure. shelves. I mean, they must be aware that something is up. Sure, and and yes, and I think. And I think what you also what, we, what you've also talked about on the show with Andres Aldata, for example, is that Putin is fully aware of that, and so he's trying to also take control of a lot of social media now. You know, trying to bring Twitter and Facebook and Google servers into his country so that he can really monitor it and potentially even erase parts of the past. Now, it's not to say that Russians can't access some of this media and that it won't have any influence, but this really goes to what I think is Putin's strength. He is. A, one of the best orators, you know, he stirs up patriotism and nationalism like you wouldn't believe. Even these truck drivers, when interviewed, didn't really want to criticize Putin. They wanted to criticize the elites he surrounds himself with. And and the truck drivers were an interesting group to go after with an initial tax because actually after Crimea, after Russia invaded Crimea, um, the truck drivers, when they pulled them, 80% of them were Putin supporters. So these are people who, despite being upset with the tax, are they anti-Putin? Not necessarily, and they're not really willing to go on record either. Yafa, thank you. Thank you. Yafa Frederick is the managing editor of World Policy Journal. Her post on the WPJ blog is headlined, The Russian Trump Card, but not about the Donald. Featured in the new WPJ Winter Issue, you'll find articles on Latin America's evolving economics and culture, the changing face of Cuba, black sites on the internet, and deadly interactions on the Syria-Turkey border. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, Managing Editor Yaffa Frederick, Online News Editor and Podcast Producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.